Colin from Tyler, Texas and the West Irwin Church of Christ coming to you again in our uh, study of the book of Acts in the New Testament, uh, beginning with a bang as we see the church beginning and going forward uh, very quickly. As we have covered uh, five chapters out of the book of Acts, there are 28 in all. It ends with a very exciting uh, voyage uh, on the part of the Apostle Paul uh, going to Rome where he has appealed to Caesar in Acts 27. Uh, that'll be a fun study. And then in Acts 28 under house arrest in Rome is where Luke leaves Paul. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and also the author of the book of Acts and a companion, a traveling companion on some of Paul's mission work. And, and so that uh, we have a lot of ground to cover before then. We look forward to the rest of this summer and looking at the book of Acts on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4 p.m. Central Time. And then if you miss it live, that's okay because it will be on my Facebook page. You can just scroll down and find it. Uh, you can also uh, see it on our website, our church website at westerwin.com where you can click on our social media link or scroll over it and then click on the live streaming and go down and click on archives and you'll see that and other uh, lessons and devotionals that we have had here at West Irwin including a lot of my devotionals that I've been doing on uh, the COVID-19 uh, epidemic and pandemic. Uh, so uh, glad to see a few joining in. I think we have uh, several that are starting up and so if you want to make a comment say hello like my dear friend and sister Debbie Spears just did that's great. If you just want to listen in, that's okay too. I appreciate all the encouragement and the comments. We're getting lots of views on this. Uh, several of you share these videos and you're welcome to do that, of course, at any time. Uh, also encourage others to kind of go back and catch up as well. Um, Acts chapter one begins with Jesus uh, ascending into heaven, giving his marching orders to his disciples to uh, uh, go throughout uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth being his witnesses uh, just as he had said in the Great Commission recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke um, and then in Acts chapter 2 the church begins with a bang on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 are added after being uh, convicted of their sins uh, during the preaching of Steve of Peter which will be very similar to the sermon we're going to read about from uh, from the apostle uh, from uh, uh, Stephen in Acts chapter six and seven, and then we will uh, look at uh, looked at chapters three and four and saw uh, the first threats to the church and to the apostles, and then uh, last uh, Tuesday in Acts chapter five, the church, uh, the apostles being persecuted, actual physical persecution for the first time. That continues all throughout uh, the book of Acts as we shall. Uh, see. And so hello to my friends, my dear friends Cindy and Eric, uh, Larry and Lynn, uh, wonderful members here at West Irwin and others I know will be joining us along the way. And so welcome, welcome, let's get to it. Uh, in Acts chapter 6 we kind of begin with the first several verses with the first, the church's first big fight. It's the fir church's first big uh, conflict. And, uh, and this is a great lesson in conflict mediation and management. It's the first big fight. We'll see another uh, church discussion in Acts chapter 15, uh, responding to the uh, opening up of the church to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, beginning in Acts chapter 10, as Peter baptizes Cornelius and his family. Uh, but we'll do this one first here in Acts chapter 6. Uh, the church is still relatively new. 
Uh, it's only been around perhaps for a few years. It's maybe around AD 33. The dates are always sketchy. Um, I like to round off the dates because we're not for sure with most all of them. There are a few that give us some historical guidance. Luke is pretty good about that. And we find some of those markers in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. But for the most part, it's been 2,000 years nearly since uh, the church began. And so we understand that uh, the dates are all approximate. I like the round numbers. For example, in the Old Testament, Abraham living around 2000 BC, Moses living around 1500 BC, King David living around 1000 BC. Those are all very rough estimates. Uh, but perhaps within, um, you know, several decades of the actual exact uh, time, which none of us uh, would be able to absolutely uh, pinpoint. Uh, and so in the New Testament, uh, it's hard to, you can go to a lot of different kinds of timelines. Some say Jesus' birth at 4 BC, some say zero uh, at the beginning of the current era, CE or um, uh, AD, if you want to use that term. Um, it's really unsure about that. Uh, if you have uh, Jesus uh, being born around zero, then you would have the Apostle Paul being born around uh, 5 CE. Uh, he's about five years younger than uh, Jesus. If you have Jesus being uh, crucified and the church beginning around AD 30 or around um, 30 CE, probably a more accurate term, not the traditional one, but probably more accurate, then you would, um, you would see uh, this story that we're reading about today perhaps a few years later, uh, around uh, 33 uh, CE. It's just, again, it's hard, to, it's hard to pinpoint those. Some say the church uh, begins in AD 33 or CE or 33 CE. Uh, just hard to, uh, hard to put a finger on those. But we know that it's just a few years old at this time. And, uh, and then within a couple of years after the events that we're reading about today, uh, within two or three years, uh, Saul of Tarsus, who we will be introduced to in today's reading, uh, is converted uh, as he encounters Jesus, the resurrected Lord, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, led into the city because he has been made blind, prays and fasts for three days, and then a Christian man, a disciple of Christ by the name of Ananias, is sent to him uh, to tell him to get up and be baptized and wash away uh, his sins, as Acts 22, verse 16 tells us. Um, but again, that's a few years down the line still. And so let's read about um, the first uh, big church fight, first of all, and then we'll read about the first uh, Christian martyr. Um, but starting in Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, which again is amazing, just as we saw in the last chapter, because even though they were threatened by the leaders, the authorities who had put to death Jesus not long before this, uh, they were threatened to not preach anymore in his name. They were threatened to, uh, that they would have uh, harm to them. That threat came true in Acts chapter 5, and yet the message is just too, too incredible. It's just too great. It can't be denied that the tomb was empty. It can't be denied that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Again, they're still in Jerusalem and will be until Acts chapter 8, which we um, uh, will get to at the very end of the lesson today, the first few verses of Acts chapter 8. Uh, but for now, they're still in Jerusalem. For now, there's a lot of people that are still there who had been converted 
on that day of Pentecost, perhaps just a few years before this time, and the church is numbering in the thousands. Remember, it starts with 3,000 converted on the first day. And then we see the, those numbers continuing uh, to increase in spite of the threat of persecution. Uh, and I think that is something that uh, should give us pause here in 21st century America as we look ahead to the future and don't know what that future holds for people of faith, for people who will want to remain uh, true to uh, the Word of God and to the teachings and doctrine of Christ and uh, the inspired uh, apostles as we read through the book of uh, the New Testament. If we're going to be faithful to those things, then that may mean that we face persecution as well. Uh, will the numbers increase? Will we be faithful? Uh, the one who stands firm to the end, Jesus had said in Matthew 24 and and we read again in uh, Revelation chapter 2, the, one, the ones who are faithful to the very end, uh, whether that's their own death or uh, the coming of Christ, those are the ones who will, who will be saved, Scripture says. Um, in those days, Acts 6 verse 1, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews, and these are Jews from a Greek background, the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews that likely had uh, come from uh, different places uh, uh, where that had come for Pentecost and now were still there and staying there because they were now a part of this church. Uh, but they came from a Hellenistic background, perhaps not, not in Palestine. Um, the Grecian Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. These were the Jews who were from a, a Hebrew background, who were possibly uh, seen as more orthodox, quote-unquote, who were seen from being in those areas of Judea uh, and Samaria and Galilee, less Hellenistic. They had not adopted uh, the culture of Hellenism that Alexander the Greek began and that the Romans continued. Um, the uh, Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So here we have the first big conflict within the church. They They'd been threatened from the outside. They'd been threatened by the Jewish leaders, and the apostles had even been beaten and flogged and told to no longer preach anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. And they were met with a resounding, we will obey God rather than man. We, we cannot be silent about the name of Christ. Um, and so they passed that test, but now Satan is going to attack from within. Sadly, he continues to do that by seeking to raise division in his church um, and and we see this as the first big conflict within the church and it's interesting that it involves a couple of things that we still struggle with even today even in the midst of this uh, pandemic uh, one of the things is uh, care for the elderly uh, their widows were being neglected the church took care of them they we've seen that already as people like barnabas selling property and bringing the money to the apostles and saying, help, help whoever needs help. Well, a lot of those who needed help were the elderly, uh, the, specifically the widows. Uh, there was no one else to care for some of them. They had no other family members. And so the church helped out. And the church does that still, helping out each other, first of all, and then, uh, as we can, the surrounding community and, and other areas as well. Well, some of those widows were being neglected. 
And so it was care for the elderly that was involved, but it was also a racial thing, just like we're facing intense uh, conflict today, uh, still in this country, uh, because of, of racial issues. That was the issue that's talked about here. And it's important for us to remember that, that this definitely was something that was not just motivated by money, but it was something that was motivated by the fact that those of a certain racial background and ethnic history, they were all Jews, remember, still Jewish Christians, but some of them were from Hellenistic areas, areas that were outside of Palestine, areas that uh, had a much more um, uh, cultural acceptance of uh, the Greek and Roman way of life, still, still Jews. Uh, but uh, from outside of this main area of Palestine and Judea, um, their widows were being neglected. And so the Hebraic widows were fine. Uh, but the non-Hebrew widows, the ones from a more Hellenistic or Greek background, uh, were being neglected. And so again, we see that, uh, that there, there are issues of, of racism here. There it's a, it's a difficulty that's going to really get stronger in the church whenever Cornelius and his family are baptized in Acts 10 and the church begins to accept Gentiles without making them become Jews, without making them proselytes. Um, and, and circumcision is rejected as being required for the first time uh, after Acts chapter 10. And, and in light of that conference in Acts chapter 15, that's the decision uh, that is made, that they're not going to force them to become Jews. They're going to allow them to continue in their Greek culture, but be respectful of those from a Jewish background. And that's where we'll see the, the, the compromise come in Acts 15. Here, uh, it's a very serious issue. This, uh, the fact that the, the widows were being neglected who were from a uh, Greek background. So the 12, verse 2, the 12 gathered, the apostles gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. That's a great and powerful statement. And leaders face that still today. Because who do people run to when they, there's a problem in the church? Well, they run to the leaders. And granted, sometimes that is exactly who you need to run to, but not every time. Not every time. And sometimes as leaders, whether it's elders, shepherds of the church, uh, those involved directly in ministry areas, uh, uh, perhaps full-time ministers or part-time ministers, others who have a very specific focus in their ministry, uh, we can't put out all the fires. We can't resolve all the problems. We can't meet everyone's needs. And when you read through Scripture and you look at passages like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, we're reminded that the church is a body and that all members are members of one body, but not all members. All members do not have the same gifts. All the gifts are important. All the gifts are needed. But they, there's a different focus for different members. And the apostles get that. And it's amazing that they stand their ground here because they could have rushed off and said, you know, we'll take care of this. We'll do it. Don't worry about it. This week, the apostles will take care of this. Well, if they did that, then they would be neglecting their ministry. Uh, the ministry of the word, the teaching and preaching that the apostles were doing 
as eyewitnesses of the life and death and resurrection of Christ, um, but also the powerful ministry of prayer. Uh, elders, ministers, other church leaders need to be people of prayer. And the apostles realized that if, if you don't have time to pray, you're too busy if you're a leader of God's people and you need to start delegating. Uh, it's something that I've always struggled with because, you know, you get into ministry because you're a people helper. You get into ministry because you want to solve people's problems. Um, and I've realized through the years that I can't solve everybody's problems. And I've realized also through the years that sometimes somebody needs someone to come and help, but they need it to be someone other than me uh, for a lot of reasons. And so I, I think that is something that is absolutely important and, and something that the apostles get here. Uh, it would not be right, Acts 6, verse 2, for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, and, and the answer is not, well, too bad. You guys are just going to have to suck it up and somehow get by. That's not the solution either. And so sometimes those are the only choices, right? One choice is for the apostles to stop what they're doing and go do it. And the other choice is just to say, well, too bad. You're just going to have to suffer. Those aren't the only choices. And when we face a conflict, when we face a difficulty, we need to remember to look for other options, to look for perhaps more creative solutions uh, that are collaborative in nature, to where both issues can be resolved in a good, positive way and, and neither one uh, uh, falters. That's what they do here. Verse 3, brothers, choose seven men. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. An incredible moment. It's a great solution. The apostles say, we're, we're not going to do this, but it's an important thing that needs to be done. And so here's what we suggest. Get seven men uh, that are spiritual men. The word deacon is never used here, but it seems like that's part of the role that's a similar task to what we read about with deacons later in the New Testament, um, in 1 Timothy 3, for example. But that's, that word is not used, but we see a similar kind of role here. And so the apostles say, look, get, you choose, church, you choose seven men who are spiritual. These aren't just men who are good at distributing food although that's obviously going to be what they're going to do. But these are men who are good leaders, men who are servant leaders, men who are spiritual, uh, and, and have them turn this, be, have this job turned over to them. They're wise men. They're smart in the ways of the world, but they're also smart in the ways of the Spirit. And so the apostles tell them to find seven men. And verse 5 says, This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, we'll hear about Philip in chapter 8. Prochorus, Nicanor, Telmon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now the interesting thing about these names is that they all seem to have a Greek background to them. And so what did they do? Well, they found seven men who not only were men who were spiritually minded men, who were wise and smart uh, as well, 
but also men who perhaps had a connection to this group, a man who you knew you could give this responsibility to and they would not let it slide. And the proposal pleases the whole group. Everybody loves it. And they choose these seven men. And these men apparently take care of this uh, task. Um, I'm going to show you something right now that is a conflict management model that is from Randy Lowry, who is now the uh, uh, the president of Lipscomb University in, uh, in Nashville. I don't know if you can see that or not. I hope you can. Uh, but it's a conflict mediation chart, and I've used it before. It's one of the most helpful things that I've used. And you'll notice you see the issue on the left side. That's the vertical access, uh, axis. And relationship that's on the bottom, that's the horizontal uh, uh, axis. And then you have several points on that. You have avoid there at the lower left, which means that the issue and the, re and the relationships, none of those are really important. And, um, and so you don't worry about any of them. Uh, and, uh, and you look at the upper left, and that is compete or confront. And on that one, the issue is all important and the relationship you're willing to sacrifice for the sake of the issue. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes the gospel is at stake. Um, you look at the lower right, and that's where you find the word accommodate. Sometimes the issue is not nearly important enough to risk the relationship, and so the relationship is a 10, and the issue becomes a zero rather than the other way around when you're willing to confront. Uh, sometimes it's the right thing to accommodate. Not everything, but sometimes yes. Um, in the middle, you see compromise, and that's where each of those is important, uh, but it's not going to uh, allow you to, uh, to resolve both of them to the extent you want, and so you compromise. That's what we'll read about in Acts 15, and I'll come back to this chart and look at it more in depth then. But you'll notice in the upper right is the collaborative solution. That's where the issue is a 10, and the relationship is a 10, and you don't want to give on either. And that was the situation here. The, uh, the uh, responsibility to take care of the widows, a 10. The relationship with the Jewish Christians who were from a Hellenistic background, a 10. The issue of the apostles continuing in their role as apostles in the ministry of the word and pre teaching and preaching and the ministry of prayer, also a 10. So you can't budge on any of them. So what do you do? Well, you, you realize there's, there's, uh, uh, there's more than just those two extreme options. And so you try to find a collaborative solution. Again, this is a very helpful thing. If you want to, to see a copy of that, I can email you one. If you want to send me a Facebook message or if you have my email or phone number, you can text me or email it to me. But it's a very helpful model. And in this model, uh, in this case, uh, the church comes through in a great, great way. Why? Because they get creative. They find another solution than for the apostles to quit praying or to quit preaching so that they can take care of a very legitimate need. Or the other uh, extreme, which is let the apostles continue to do what they've been called by God to do and tell the widows they're just going to have to find a way to make it without the church helping. Um, neither of those was the right call. And so the church found a way and the church said, you know, we've got people here who can do this. It doesn't have to be the apostles. Others can do this, but they can't do what the apostles are doing. So let's get them to do this. Let's, let's charge them with the task. And, and, and it's a wonderful, collaborative, creative solution. We need to do that more. We need to, 
ask questions about what's really going on here and, and try to, as the saying goes, get below uh, the line. Joyce and I were actually watching an episode of Dr. Phil yesterday where he talked about uh, going below the line in, in a conflict that was going on between a husband and wife who were fighting over uh, issues that really weren't uh, below the line. They weren't talking about what was really important. And, and what's, what's below the line here? Well, the important issues are the preaching and ministry of the Word and the ministry of prayer, as well as uh, the racial uh, equality that needed to happen in the church and the desire to make sure that everyone's needs were met and not just those who came from a certain ethnic background or who came from a certain part of the world. Um, those were significant issues and creatively the apostles were able to help the church to be able to, to uh, find a reasonable solution that would satisfy all of that. Um, we need to be able to do that. So what's the result? Well, the result is seen in verse 7. So the word of God spread. Of course it did. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Again, that's very significant, because remember the priests were some of the ones who were really trying to uh, get Jesus uh, killed, and ultimately did who were some of the ones, I'm sure, that were uh, trying to uh, destroy this, this fledgling church, the, the followers of Jesus. Uh, but many of them also saw what was going on, and they saw that it was real, and they saw that the hand of God was in it, and they, they said, I want to be a part of this. And it's times like this that Satan is thwarted. We're going to see it again in Acts 15 with the Gentiles. We'll see it when Paul and Barnabas have a, have a conflict and Satan tries to divide this wonderful mission work of the church and, and yet he is defeated again. Um, this conflict mediation model from Dr. Randy Lowry and, and others have used similar things, uh, very helpful in times of conflict. Look and ask yourself what that issue is that you're fighting over, not just the precipitating event, but what the real issues are. Ask yourself how important are these relationships and, and if, if, if there's one or the other that uh, is not the significant part of this, or if both are, then it'll help you, I believe, figure out the, the right solution. That's what we find uh, here in these first several verses of the book of Acts. Well, these men, these seven men that are chosen, as we'll see, they did more than just provide uh, a necessary ministry of providing food for the widows. That, as important as that is, they also did other things uh, Philip was an evangelist, and we'll see him in Acts chapter 8, converting many of the people of Samaria, the region just north of Judea where Jerusalem is located. We'll also see him converting the Ethiopian treasurer uh, in Acts chapter 8. Um, but first we're going to hear about Stephen. Um, so Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. 
verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law or scribes. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. That's that Jewish ruling council that convicted Jesus and sent him to Pilate. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, likely the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then in chapter 7, he's going to get to defend himself and tell the story. And it'll be a great history of the Jews up until the time of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But let's get there first. Let's look at through this passage. Um, Stephen is a great preacher. Uh, he's not only a great servant leader who took, helped take care of the widows from a Hellenistic background, but he was also a great preacher himself. Uh, he did great wonders and miracles as well. He had wonderful, miraculous gifts, was very spiritual as, uh, as one of those seven men, but also as a leader in the church at Jerusalem. But of course, opposition arose. This synagogue of the freedmen, what was that? Well, I, I'm not completely for sure, but it seems like it was a, a synagogue of individuals uh, who had been slaves, perhaps Jewish slaves uh, to the emperor in Rome, who had been released. Uh, and now had returned uh, to Jerusalem. Perhaps they were there for the feasts of Passover and Pentecost, and, uh, and they were still there. And perhaps there was a synagogue there in Jerusalem that they had established. And so they were part of that. This group was very tenacious in their dedication to uh, the Jewish doctrine and the Jewish way, uh, probably because they had been forced out of it for a while but then had been released, and now were freedmen, now were uh, uh, people who had been liberated, and were back in Jerusalem. Again, we're still in Jerusalem. And so they were some of the ones that were primarily uh, charging uh, against Stephen and against this early church. Why? Because they were very threatened by it, just like the Jewish leaders were threatened by Jesus. In fact, in this passage, as we'll see in throughout chapter 7, we find a lot of similarities between Stephen and what happened uh, to Jesus. Just like with Jesus, they brought uh, false charges against him that couldn't stick. Uh, they had false witnesses that seemed to contradict each other. Uh, and, and they couldn't deny what Stephen was saying. They couldn't deny the power with which he spoke. Just like Jesus was said to uh, speak with authority and not as their religious leaders as Matthew describes it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Uh, Stephen was the same way. Uh, just like Peter and John, when they healed the man uh, who was lame from birth, uh, they, they couldn't deny that a healing took place because the man was jumping around, standing there praising God right before them. Uh, in the same way, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't go against Stephen. And so they finally say things like, well, he's speaking words of blasphemy. Uh, he's trying to take Moses away. He's trying to change the law. Um, now there, you know, there there is some something truth to that because uh, Stephen is saying that we're to follow Jesus now. That God has brought a new way, and and he brought a he brought it about an extraordinary way with uh, signs and wonders and gifts and miracles. 
that, that denote the extraordinary change that is taking place. And, and that was not something that they wanted in Jesus' day, and it's not something that they wanted in Stephen's day uh, either. They say that the, he talks against the temple, uh, which was not true. They say, like they charged Jesus, that, that he could destroy this uh, place and this temple. It wasn't true for Jesus either. Jesus was talking about his body uh, when he made some of those claims uh, and so there was, there was a lot of, of uh, horrible, false things that they were just throwing up against the, the wall to see what would stick against Stephen. And now Stephen is able to make his defense. And, and before he does, they see his face glowing like the face of an angel. Obviously, the Spirit was with him. And so now we look uh, to the, uh, the high priest question of Stephen in chapter 7, verse 1, are these charges true? And so Stephen, like Paul would later, is going to be given a chance to defend himself. And what he does is he does a little preaching. He tells the story. He tells the story of the Jews, first of all, and he tells about the culmination of that story in Jesus of Nazareth and his death, burial, and resurrection. This sermon that that we'll read from Stephen is very similar to what Peter preached uh, in Acts chapter 2. It's very similar to what Paul will say when he goes before the synagogues, uh, especially on that first mission journey, uh, as it's recorded in Acts uh, chapter 13. Um, so let's read this great history. It's, it's, a, it's a great statement of the Jewish story. I've preached... Um, the Bible story before, a one-shot sermon that preaches through the whole Bible. Those of you that know me well know that it's hard for me anymore, anyway, uh, to, to not preach long, and, um, and it's especially hard to get all of the story of the Bible in one sermon, and I find myself um, taking a lot of time with those great stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's sons uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, and talking about Moses and, and the, the, all, that went, all that went on with him. And, and that's, what, um, that's what Stephen emphasizes as well. Um, uh, so I thought I'd just throw that one in there. Okay, verse 2. To this Stephen replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. This call that came uh, to Abram. Uh, that we see, especially in, in Genesis chapter 12. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. And then he would later receive that call uh, that says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through your descendant, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We read about that in Genesis 12 and in other places. So, verse 4, Abram left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. Remember, Abram and Sarah were childless. And by the time uh, Isaac was born, Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah was 90. Um, born in the natural way, but born in a very miraculous way. Verse 6, God spoke to him in this way, Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. 
but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, talking about uh, the uh, Israelites in Egypt. But I will punish, verse 7, the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place where they were in Palestine. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Uh, his, his child Ishmael had already been born and was, I, I can't remember exactly how old, about 12 years old maybe, and uh, Abraham and Ishmael are circumcised uh, according to uh, the book of Genesis. Um, and Abraham, uh, verse uh, 8, uh, he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob had the twelve sons and a daughter, Dinah, and Jesus would be descended from one of those sons uh, of the tribe, as we say, of Judah. Uh, Levi, another son, would be the priestly tribe. Uh, they would be the Levites. They would help Moses with the tabernacle. And a descendant of Levi would be uh, Moses and his brother Aaron, their sister Miriam, and Aaron would be called to be the priest. So the priests are not just descendants of Levi, but they're also descendants of Aaron. Um, because the patriarchs, verse 9, were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamar at Shechem for a certain sum of money. A lot of summarizing there from Stephen, but it's a great story in the book of Genesis. He's really telling the story of Genesis, how Joseph was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, and then he uh, is able to endure that uh, uh, for uh, uh, 13 years, from the time he was 17 until age 30, when he interprets Pharaoh's dreams and tells him and warns him of the upcoming famine and that there are several years of plenty before that comes. And so they, Joseph is elevated and leads that work, and finally his family uh, comes to him. Great, great story. Read the book of Genesis. Exciting, difficult at times, but exciting stuff. Verse 17, um, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would not die. They had been slaves for hundreds of years after Joseph and the Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And, and now they're feeling threatened by their numbers, and so they're trying to kill off the newborns. Verse 20, at that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. That wonderful story from the first few chapters of Exodus. Verse 22, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. 
When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. And so Stephen gives us a little insight there in verse 25 that we don't really get uh, from the Exodus account. And that is that Moses felt like at age 40 that God was going to use him to save his people. And he thought everybody would get that, but they didn't. And because he was half right, God was going to use him, but he wasn't ready yet. Um, Verse 26, the next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons and stayed there for 40 years. And we know very little about that time, but that was crucial for Moses. It brought him from the time of this perhaps arrogant, take matters into his own hands man at age 40 to the time where he would be the great leader and lawgiver at age 80 and lead the people out of Egyptian bondage and through 40 years in the wilderness. Um, Verse 30, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Now I have to show you this. This is a burning bush kit. For those of you that are from our wonderful church family at Woodland West in Arlington, you will recognize this. This is something that we used uh, to create our own burning bush. It's a burning bush kit. And most of the time it works great. Most of the time. It worked great that day before when we tried it out. You you get a cut a branch off of something and you dip it in, the, you let it set in this uh, liquid uh, stuff for a while, for all night or whatever, and, and then you can light it the next day and it will it will burn, but it won't, it won't burn up. It's, it's kind of incredible. And it worked great the day before, but when we tried it in the auditorium that day during vacation Bible school, ah, it didn't work so well. And it started smoking and there was smoke in the whole auditorium. And, and my dear friends, Sabre Ellis and Jody Thornton were in the back because I had a a wet blanket and, and a pail of water by the pulpit. And they, they were thinking, Bill, put it out, put it out, put it out. And I finally did. But needless to say, we, smelled smoke in the auditorium for a while after that. That's my burning bush story. Isn't it a great one? I love it. Okay, um, uh, let's keep going. Um, when he saw this, verse 31, this bush that burned and did not burn up, uh, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, the place where you're standing is holy ground. We get a great, great song from that or two, don't we? I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the desert. Read those stories in Exodus again, and remember that when God calls him out of that burning bush, that amazing thing, Moses says no. And he offers excuse after excuse after excuse. And finally God tells him, you're my man, Moses, you're going to go. And he does. 
verse 37. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own uh, people, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 18, that, that, that prophecy that says it's about to be fulfilled uh, in Jesus Christ, Stephen will tell them. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us the law. But our fathers, verse 39, refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. What a great way to say that. They had been telling Moses, let's go back to Egypt, let's go back to Egypt. And what Stephen says is, in their hearts, they already had. Uh, what an incredible, incredible statement. Um, they told him, they told Aaron, verse 40, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That's when he was on Mount Sinai receiving the law. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf, and we're all familiar with that story. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. What a horrible description, uh, but perfectly describing a heart that's given over to worship something as God that's not God, something that is made by hand or something that is a part of this world rather than a part of uh, the nature of God himself. Verse 42, but God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Quoting from Amos 5 now, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech, one of those false gods, and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon, which he did um, in 586 BC. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out uh, before them. Uh, back when uh, Joshua led the people across the Jordan River and into the promised land to fulfill those promises made uh, to Abraham. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Still the tabernacle, not the temple until the days of David and ultimately Solomon. Verse 47, but it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Isaiah would ask. And Solomon in his prayer of dedication even recognizes who could ever build a house that God could live in. Uh, a great prayer of dedication uh, that, Sam, that Solomon offers up to God. Verse 51. Now Stephen leaves preaching and goes to meddling as the saying goes. He's talked about all the things that all his hearers love. But now he's going to talk to them about their sin. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. They were circumcised, they were Jews, but they were uncircumcised in their hearts and in their ears. They weren't listening to God. They weren't hearing the message of God. Their hearts were far away. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah. 
and now you have betrayed and murdered him, the end of verse 52 says. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Oh, these words cut right to them, but unlike those 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, they do not believe, and they are unwilling to repent. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What an amazing statement, and I've heard lessons on this. You have too. Stephen, being comforted by this great vision, this great message from God, as he sees the heavens open and he sees the throne room of God and he sees the Father seated on the throne, but Jesus not seated at his right hand, standing as if to show such great concern such great compassion for what was happening to Stephen. And that's what Jesus does when we go through our difficult pains and troubles as well. He cares. He is watching. And during those especially difficult times, I believe he stands just as he did with Stephen, out of concern and compassion for us. Verse 55, Stephen sees that great vision. Verse 56, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And just like a similar statement convicted Jesus to death by the Jewish leaders, it's the same thing for Stephen. But they're not going to wait and send him to Pilate. Um, they're going to pronounce him guilty, a punishment of death, and carry it out right now. Verse 57, at this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Later, Saul would say, when, when Stephen was put to death, I was there, and I was approving of everything that was going on. This is our first look into the uh, introduction into the man who would become the great apostle Paul. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Many similarities between what happens to Stephen here and what had happened to Jesus, calling on the Father to receive his spirit, seeking the forgiveness of those who were actually putting him to death. Uh, what an incredible, incredible story. This is the first one put to death. The apostles had been flogged. They had been beaten. They had been threatened. But Stephen is, is the first one killed because of faith in Christ. Jesus said it would happen to the, those disciples while he was here on this earth. He said, a time will come when people will think by killing you, they are serving God. That's exactly what they thought when they killed Jesus and put him on the cross that's exactly what they're thinking now as they stone Stephen to death. This unruly mob, very similar to what happened with Jesus when the religious leaders stirred up the crowd to cry out to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. In this case, they take matters into their own hands, pick up rocks, and kill Stephen, stone him uh, to death. And at the end of chapter 7 that, and the beginning of, of chapter 8, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, Acts 8, verse 1. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. 
Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Just like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two members of the Jewish ruling council who did not vote to put Jesus to death, just as they came and took the body down from the cross, and buried him in Joseph's tomb, which was nearby. Godly men get the body of Stephen, that, frail, that limp, dead body of Stephen, with all the wounds from all of those rocks, uh, and take him and, and bury him. But it's Saul who becomes the point man. It is Saul of Tarsus who goes to the Jewish leaders and says, I'm going to put an end to this. I'm your guy. And, and Saul becomes the guy. He becomes the leader of the movement uh, to try to seek out all who would name the name of Christ and threaten them and beat them and imprison them and as we see with Stephen here, even put them uh, to death. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison, verse 3 uh, says. Saul becomes that leader of, of the Jewish uh, uh, efforts to end the church before it gets any any worse. And, um, and when it says a great persecution broke out, it, it, they're for real. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, those who would seek to name the name of Christ in a public way um, would have to suffer persecution uh, for that. We see that in books such as Hebrews and First and Second Thessalonians and, and the Revelation. Um, that became a very real part of these first few decades of the church. How old is Saul at this time? Uh, probably under 30. He's probably between 25 and 30. Considered a young man still. Um, and interestingly enough, in just a few years, perhaps as little as two, in two or three years, uh, Saul would have that Damascus encounter with Jesus. And, and instead of being the point man for the Jewish opposition, uh, would become one of the great apostles and missionaries and writers of inspired New Testament scripture. Uh, of the church in those first few decades. Uh, how long would he live after that, after this? Uh, probably less than 30 years. Uh, and he would ultimately be killed, according to tradition, uh, put to death by Nero in Rome, uh, being beheaded because as a Roman citizen they couldn't crucify him, but they could take his life, and ultimately they do. Well, what happens to the church? Well, Everyone is scattered, except the apostles. They stay in Jerusalem. Everyone else has to flee. That's how bad the persecution was. They have to run for their lives. Uh, the book of First and Second Peter are written to some of those who are out there, the dis those who had been dispersed among uh, the, uh, the world, uh, and probably uh, to those areas, uh, Christians who had gone perhaps from this very moment and had settled in um, what we would call Asia Minor in some of the northern and northwestern parts of what we would call Turkey. But what about this church? Verse 4 tells us that everywhere they went, they went preaching the word. Jesus had told them, go into all the world. However you want to describe that, however you want to translate it, go into all the world, or as you go throughout the world, um, make disciples of all the nations. And that's what the early church began to do. And we're beginning to see the next phase in what Jesus had told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses, starting here in Jerusalem, and then in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, and ultimately 
uh, the end of the earth. We see that beginning to be fulfilled right now. Uh, as they are dispersed and scattered, they're forced out of Jerusalem, uh, but as they go, they go preaching the word. And now we are going to be introduced again to one of those seven men chosen, and that will be Philip the evangelist. And we'll see the work that he does in that region just north of Judea, where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are, uh, the region of the Samaritans, uh, the hated Samaritans that were seen as a half-breed nation, a half-breed people, not like uh, Orthodox, full-blood Jews, because of, of the settling that they had. And uh, uh, Philip will be sent to them, and he'll be continuing to preach uh, the gospel. And as that great persecution breaks out, the church breaks out, the mission breaks out, the gospel message breaks out, far beyond just Jews in Jerusalem, uh, throughout uh, the, the immediate regions, and then, as we'll see in Acts chapter 10, even among the non-Jews, uh, the Gentiles. What a great story this is. What an exciting story. Uh, even though it's with great difficulty, the church continues to grow and the gospel continues to spread. May that be said of 21st century American Christians as well, that as we go, uh, whatever the consequences, uh, whatever the risk, whatever the threats, whatever the price that has to be paid, we too will go everywhere preaching the word. May God's spirit be with us to accomplish that very task. God bless you in the days ahead. I'll see you Tuesday, and we'll look at Acts chapter 8.